Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Well, in, in 2004, um, uh, it was only the second time I'd ever left the United States, but I got a, on a plane here in Atlanta and flew to Guangzhou, China, and then I got on a plane there and flew to Kunming, China, and then we got in a car and drove for about seven hours to uh, another town called Dali, uh, and there uh, I had a couple of days of training. I learned some very basic Mandarin, and we kind of learned what we were supposed to do, but I, I'd gone over there with a, a buddy of mine, and we were going to go up into the kind of the Himalayan hills around Dali, west of Dali, um, heading toward the Burmese border, and create demographic maps. Uh, they knew there was a people group out there that uh, people in the IMB were trying to reach, were trying to minister to, were trying to get a church planting movement started among. And so my buddy Barrett uh, Fisher and I went out to go find these people. And so we would take a car from Dolly as far as we could go. This is as far as I'd ever been away from home and still to this day, the far as I'd been away. And we'd, we'd take this car up as far as we could take a car. And then we'd start walking um, and most of these villages that we would get to were only accessible uh, on foot. And so we had to hike over these hills and through these mountains, and we'd come across um, these little towns. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, it was an amazing trip, and it was an amazing thing to experience, and it was amazing to connect with people. And, you know, we didn't really know a, a lot of Mandarin, uh, just a few basic phrases, and I don't really remember any of it. The only phrase that I do remember is we because we always said it was womanchu pashan kankan waniwan shwebian which which means people would ask us what are you doing and so we always would say that just like on repeat and which means we're hiking we're looking around we're having fun whatever you know that's what uh <laughs> that's what that that's what that means and so <laughs> But it was a great trip, and, and at one point, Barrett got sick. He got sick in this little town called Guy. so we were held up there for a couple of days. And so, you know, when you're just like there, and you don't really know the language, and we didn't have books or anything, I mean, there really just wasn't much for me to do, but our ace in the hole to connect with the folks was to play Mahjong. You all know the name, game Mahjong? Well, you know, out, out in China, it's big. I mean, it's like, it's, everybody plays Mahjong. And so guys would just sit around and smoke cigarettes and play Mahjong, and so that's, you know, what I did for a couple of days with them. Uh, and just to create company and, and just be there. Of course, I wasn't really talking with them, but I did, you know, develop a pretty mean Mahjong game skill. Um, but I think about these guys um, living in these remote places so far from here, such a different life than obviously, you know, I have and that I had grown up with before that. And as I think about them, I, I hope, I certainly remember some of them. Uh, I hope that some of them remember me. I, I'd like to think that they say, remember that guy that played Mahjong with us for a couple of days? He was pretty good in Mahjong. Um, but ultimately what I wanted for them and why we were there, we were just giving demographic information to the International Mission Board, but ultimately we, what I wanted for them was that they would come to believe this passage that you just heard. And they would believe that this passage written by a Hebrew prophet thousands of years before them, in a, in a place very far away from them. They would believe that this passage actually answers some of the deepest questions of their soul. 
that actually answered some of the, the questions that their heart had been asking since the beginning of their lives. This ancient text would actually explain to them their very being. And so it, for the same reason that it's important to them and that I wanted, desperately wanted them to receive these words, these words from God, I, I want us to receive them. These words are important to us here today. And so this year, uh, we're going to be spending 12 weeks in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're not going to do it all at one time, but, but over the course of the year, 12 weeks, we're going to look at this ancient text. And of course, we believe that it's more than just an ancient text written down by an ancient prophet. We believe that these words come to us as the inspired word of God. And therefore, what Nicole just read comes to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were speaking these words to us. Now, this passage in particular, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, is one of, if not the, most thought about, talked about, written about passages in all of the Bible. It's one of the most consequential passages written in really all of literature. Uh, if you think about, uh, I, if, even, even this week it became so apparent to me as I was doing study for this, there, there is so much thought, there is so much that has been said about this particular passage. And again, not just biblically. You, you relate this passage to all of literature ever written in any language. This is one of the most significant consequential passages that's ever been written down. Now, a lot of recent talk about this passage, <coughs> excuse me, is concerned with, is focused on the how of creation. How did this, this happen? How did this amazing thing that God created the world, how did it happen? Did it happen? And, and did it happen over a short period of time? Did it happen relatively recently, meaning just a few thousand years ago? Or did it happen millions of years ago? Did it happen over six literal days? Was there an evolutionary process? Was there a long gap between the first two verses of the Bible and so on and so forth? And, and of course, I'm not saying that, that those things are not important. They are important. They're good things to talk about. But I don't think that we've looked at this passage rightly. It's, it's primarily not about how these things happened in a technical sense. This is not, if you look at this passage rightly, a, a journal entry into a technical science, you know, journal. It's not written as such. It's, 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 it's a creative and beautiful narrative account. Some have even called it a song of creation. Now, it's not written in typical Hebrew prose, but there are all these song-like qualities to it. There's repetition throughout it. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Even as Nicole was reading it, there's a rhythm about this passage that's beautiful and good. Uh, the phrase after, at the end of each day, uh, and God looked at everything that he had made and it was good. It was good. It was good. Even how the passage begins is interesting. It, if, you look, if you were, if we're able to read it in the Hebrew, it begins with rhymes. For example, the, the passage, the earth was formless and void, in Hebrew is a rhyme. Uh, the passage, darkness was over the face of the deep, is a rhyme. The spirit was hovering over the waters, is a rhyme. So before we get to the how of creation, and I think that is important for us to think about, I want us to think today about what the prophet was trying to say. He's trying to say a lot here. <laughs> and there's so much packed into this, into this passage. But for the time that we have, I just want to look at five things that I believe 
the prophet Moses is trying to instruct us, by the power of God, trying to instruct us with five lessons from Genesis chapter 1. The first that we, we must hold on to, it's so important to take away from this passage, is the lesson of authority. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, I said this in the Understanding Everything series, but this passage, Douglas Wilson said, who's a pastor, is the most offensive verse in all the Bible. Now, you didn't think so, right? I mean, we, we, we are more ashamed of other verses, uh, verses that talk about uh, killing or human sexuality or the wrath of God or whatever it may be. But, but Wilson says, and I think he rightly says, this, no, this passage is the most offensive because this passage establishes who's in control. This passage establishes authority. The world is not about you. You don't get to decide what is good or bad. You don't get to decide what is right or wrong. You and I are simply a part of creation. God is creator. He was in the beginning and he created. And if, and if you've ever looked, this, it's interesting too, if you've ever really looked critically at some of the, you know, the non-theistic or atheistic kind of versions of creation, so much of it is contradictory science. So much of the presuppositions are based on um, on uh, so much of the, the, the science is based on presuppositions that has later been declared, well, that's not actually what we meant. It's been rejected. And I think so many of these efforts to remove God in the account of ordering and creating the world are just simply that. They're efforts to remove God in the ordering and the creating of the world. Because the Bible makes this clear that God is in control. That God is before all things. That everything and everything that ever was, everything that ever is, that is, everything that ever will be, is because God is allowing it to exist. Everything in all of creation is dependent on God. Only God is independent. The earth, the stars, the idea of light, the fact that there is light and darkness, the fact that there is time, these, all of these things flow from the creative mind of God who is more than all things and who is before all things. In the beginning, God, he created, he formed, he spoke, and the world was made. Now, in the beginning, there was no question of authority, right? People, you know, Adam and Eve, I like to think of this, Adam and Eve knew who was in authority from the very beginning. The Bible, even when talking about the creation of man, and I even like the imagery of it, it says that God breathed life into Adam. And I like to think of that. The first thing that Adam beheld, the, the first notion that Adam had as he opened his eyes in life was God. All of the questions of who am I, where did I come from, what's life all about, it was all answered. As soon as he opened his eyes, there was no confusion. He could see God, he could behold God. The man and the woman could behold God clearly without any, without any lenses, without any confusion. And they could see by beholding him that he was true and that he was right and that he was real and that he was in control. But for us today, it's, it's harder. For those guys that I was playing Mahjong with back in 2004 in China, it's harder. There's a lot of different accounts that we have to wade through now. There's a lot of different questions that people ask. We, we can be so blind to truth because of our sin now. And, and I think it's interesting that it's been said that people aren't even looking up anymore. You know, Colin Hansen, uh, who was here in October, 
um, gave this very interesting uh, descriptor of where we search for knowledge. You know, he said, before the Enlightenment, when people sought to find out the great answers to the questions of the world, they looked up, right? They looked up. Where have I come from? What is going on? You know, what, what does my future hold? People looked up. People looked up to find truth, to find authority, to find the answers. But of course, with the Enlightenment, with the kind of humanistic movement, we, we began to be more confident, not in what was up, but in what was in front of us. We began to look around, right? Maybe he has an answer. Maybe she has an answer. Maybe he knows something that I don't know. We, we started to look around. We started to, to look to the human intellect, to the human's ability to discover things for the answer. But then, you know, Collins said that now we're in the information age. Now we're in the age of technology. What are people doing now? They're looking down. You know, our whole posture has changed from looking up to looking around to looking down. And when people are looking down, there's no harmony. There's no authority. There's no, there's no unity. There's no union. They, we have no notion of who is in control. Which is why we need this. It's why we need this passage. It's why we need to be confident from people in Atlanta to people in remote China to people in Pakistan or Brussels. Ever. We need Genesis 1, this lesson of authority that says God created all things. We are only a part of the story that he is telling. For Adam, life was not so confusing. All he had to do was open his eyes and he could behold the glory of God. As I've said this before, y'all heard me say this, but it, it's one of my favorite things to think about. Before Adam sinned, the Bible says he didn't even know he was naked. Now, you know, how, how, self, how unself-aware do you have to be to not even be aware of your own nakedness? But Adam wasn't aware of his own self-nakedness. He did, all, everything to him was God. It wasn't about Adam. It wasn't about who he was. He had beheld God and only God mattered. Only God had authority. God had a weight of glory. In the beginning, God, he is before all things. He is greater than all things. He has all authority. So the first lesson that we need to learn from this is the, the lesson of authority. But secondly, I think the author wants us to see the lesson of order. There is a careful order to this account. There is an order about creation. This is, again, one of the great problems of an atheistic worldview. Uh, an atheistic worldview has many issues. And if you come here today from that worldview perspective, you know, I'm so glad you're here, but, but the foundation of your worldview is c complicated. It's confused. There's no basis for morality. There's no basis for origin. That's a massive problem. There's no basis for meaning. There's no basis for purpose. But, but, in all, but beyond all of that, in an atheistic worldview kind of framework, everything, it must be believed that everything happens by chance. Everything is a chance collision of time and matter in space. But of course, this flies against what we see and what we observe in every other avenue of life. Anytime that you see design, anytime that you see order, anytime that you see something that is orderly, what do you automatically, and what have we tested for all time, what have we proven, I think you would say, is that there is an order. Where you see design, where you see order, there is an orderer. There is someone who is ordering these things. Order does not happen simply by chance. And of course, this is what we see here. God is a God of order. Now again, this isn't a, this, this, 
the design that we see here, the design that is described here, this is not a scientific journal, but this passage is clearly telling us that there is a grand designer, that there is a grand orderer. Um, even in the even the way the passage is, is written, it, it's interesting to think about, if you even just think through the days of creation, put this up here real quick, there's a, there's a, <coughs> there's an order about it. There's a, um, there's a, there's a creating and a filling about it. If you, if you notice here in, in day one, it said that God separated the lights from the darkness, and, and in day four, what happens? There's a, there's an ordering that takes place. God is showing that he's, he's ordering these things that he has set in place. God placed the sun and the moon and the stars in heaven. Day two, what do we see? The sky and the waters were separated. Day five, God is filling the sky, and he's filling the water with the fish and with the birds. In day three, the dry land and the seas were separated. God made the plants and the trees. What do we see in day six? God made the land animals and the man uh, and the woman. He is filling the land. He is filling the land that he has created and that he has provided for. There is an order about everything that God has made. Concluding, of course, with the highest part of God's creation and highest part of his order, which, of course, is man. He has set us above all of his creation. He has given the man and the woman a place of prominence, a place of, and we talked about this the other night a good deal, dominion. Uh, the Spotted Cow, if you were there on Tuesday, uh, we had a great time. We talked about dominion. Uh, this, this, this thing that God has created, this, this, this desire I think that God has put in all of us to be people of dominion, to take dominion, to have dominion. Why do we want to have dominion? It's one of the reasons that, that men and women like sports so much because sports is an exercise of dominion. You know, if you can take a basketball and you can shoot it through an 18-inch 18 18-inch cylinder from 24 feet away or, you know, if you're Seth, you know, from... 50 feet away, you know. If you can do that, that, that shows an amazing amount of talent, an amazing amount of skill, an amazing amount of dominion. You know, tonight is the Super Bowl. You don't get to the Super Bowl unless you have had dominion over this game. If you've had dominion over creation, if you're able to do things at an exceptionally high level, and I hope it doesn't happen so much tonight, but it probably will. Tom Brady is going to throw a 40-yard pass through a window this big under immense duress from some of the scariest human beings <laughs> that exist. And when he does that, he will be exercising incredible dominion. And, and this is why we like sports. This is why work can be so exhilarating. It's an exercise of dominion. You're, you're understanding order. You're, when you work and you're doing a good job at your job, you, you are understanding the order that God has placed in his creation. You're taking dominion over the things that God has made. And he has made for you to take dominion over. But if you think of the very first job, what do we see? We see Adam in the garden doing what? He's taking dominion over things that God had made. He's taking the raw materials of soil and seed and he's putting them together. He's putting them together in an orderly way. He's crafting dominion over them. He's figuring out how to care for them, to get water to them. He's cultivating. In fact, that's where we get the word culture, right? He's creating culture in the garden. He's, he's, he's exercising dominion over the things that God has made, and he's producing a crop. And that is good, and that is right. There is something good about his 
understanding God's order and his exercising of dominion. And this is true of every job. You know, if you're a builder, right? Some of you are builders. What are you doing? You're taking the raw materials of the earth. You're putting them together in an orderly fashion. You're following the order. You're exercising dominion over those materials. And you're providing a useful place for people to live or for people to go to school or for people to work. There's something that's exhilarating in that, right? There's something that feels great about that when we work. Um, And this is, again, it's true of every kind of work. If you're a banker, what are you doing? You, you are cultivating money. You're figuring out how to rightly use money and how to lend it and how to charge for it in a way that creates human flourishing, that, that is filling the earth, that is good for the earth. You know, if you're a musician, like Matt's a musician, you know what Matt does? He takes the raw materials of notes and words. Now, I know you think, you hear Matt's songs and you're like, he's got special notes and special words. No, He's got the notes that all of us have access to. And he's got the words that all of us have access to. They're not like special words. They're not special notes. But he knows how to exercise dominion over those notes. He knows how to exercise dominion over those words. And he puts them together in this orderly way. And when you can do that, and all of you are doing that all the time, every week, you, that there's something exhilarating about that. Why? Because that's how you've been made. That's, that's how, what God made you to do. This is the order that God established. And when, when God sees this order working together, the, sees the things that he has made, he says, ah, this is good. This is very good. Which brings us to the third lesson, and that is the lesson of beauty. There's a lesson of beauty. There is, there is good. There is right. We see this refrain, you know, again, throughout the passage, it is good. It is good. It is very good. You know, so what is beauty? You know, there's a lot to be said about beauty. You know, people say a lot of things about beauty. They define beauty in different ways. But here's a definition. Beauty is when something is in accordance with the design of God. Right? Something is beautiful when it is in accordance with the design of God. When something matches up with God's design, it is beautiful. When it is what it is supposed to be. When it displays design and there is honor in beauty there is no shame in beauty there is goodness in beauty when something is not as it is designed it is not beautiful there are things that are cringeworthy right there are things that should disgust you there are things where there is shame But in beauty, there is no shame. In true beauty, there is no shame. You never have to be ashamed of something that is honoring its design. Because it's beautiful. Because it's right. This is what beauty is. When something is not as it is designed to be, it is not beautiful. When something is as it is designed to be, it is beautiful. So, (coughs) we use something we've been talking about. Work. When you go work... When you go work a job in an honorable way, in a way of integrity, in an honest way, in a hard-working way, there is something good to that. You're proud of that. There is a design in that. It is God's design. God has called us to work, to be productive. When you don't work, right? You ever talk to somebody that, that doesn't work? They don't like to talk about the fact that they're not working, right? Because they're ashamed of not working. Why? If someone's not working, why is it, why is they ashamed of it? No, it's because there is a design. We, we know that we're supposed to be using ourselves for something. We're supposed to be giving ourselves to something. We're supposed to be crafting um, our... We're supposed to be using our skills in a way that is taking dominion. Now, on the other side of the coin, there's limits to work. 
if you always work, right? If you never rest, if you neglect your family, right? What? We don't, we don't praise that. There's shame in that. There's shame in that too. In fact, some people that are kind of workaholics, they're always trying to, they don't want to talk about that. Because that's a shameful thing. Why? Because God has not designed us to work all the time. There are limits in God's order. There are limits in the design that God has created. And see, all of the reason that we, we all can recognize these things, not just, it's not just Christians that recognize these things. Everybody recognizes these things. Because there's enough image of God in all of us to understand design and to understand beauty. And when things are to how they are designed, they are beautiful and there's no shame this applies to all of creation. Of course, something that's very confused and distorted in our day is, is sex, right? Sex is a beautiful thing that God has made. And there is a design to sex. There is an order to sex. And within that design, there is no shame in sex. Sex between a man and a woman is defined in Scripture as a lifelong covenant. In the covenant of marriage. It should be kept in the covenant of marriage. We see here in the garden, Adam and Eve, there was no shame. They were naked and unashamed. Now, outside of marriage, again, sex may seem to be beautiful at first, but what? There's always shame attached. There's always shame attached when sex is not done in God's way. These, these aren't things that you want coming up at your rehearsal dinner, right? They're, they're not things, if you're a public figure, that you want the media to get a hold of. You know, it's interesting, even in the most secular country, even in the most secular countries, kind of some of the countries in Europe, like Italy, where, where it's very common for men to have mistresses, the, the uh, infidelity is still something that is used as a political attack. Why is that? Why is that? Because there's a design. There's an order. There's a beauty. And in this beauty, there is no shame. It is right. It is good. The fourth lesson that this passage wants to teach us is the lesson of blessedness. The lesson of blessedness. This is very interesting. Look at verse 27. God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, I think this idea of blessedness, this, this idea that God is blessing these, this man and the woman that he has made, this is a unique language for the man and the woman. Another unique language, and I think these two are tied together, is that God is creating the man and the woman in his own image. What is this idea about? Again, this is another thing that a lot of ink has been spilled over. What is image of God? What does this mean? And, and I think that it has two ideas, two things that we need to think about. The first is the idea of reflection, and the second is the idea of rule. Image of God, or the blessedness of the man and the woman, has everything to do with reflection and rule. The way that you and I are made as human beings, ontologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way, the way that we have been made, God has made us with a special capacity to reflect his glory. Everything in creation brings glory to God. Everything in creation reflects the image of God and the glory of God. But, but human beings, men and women in particular, have a special capacity to clearly reflect the image and the glory of who God is. This is something that is sacred. This is something that is powerful, that God has given to you. M most of who he is will be known 
in these little image bearers that run around, which is us. Let me talk about, I'll come back to that, but I want to talk about the next part too. It's also understood in a rule. It's understood in reflection and rule. Um, in the ancient Near East, throughout the ancient world, <coughs> if, if someone, if a ruler or a king wanted you to rule on behalf of them, wanted you to rule in their stead, wanted you to, to take authority in their place, they would give you their image. They would give you, and in fact, even in the ancient world, it was called the image of God. It was a divine image. They would give you, we, we see this in Genesis 41, when Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet, his image. If you have this image, you will speak, and it's as if I am speaking. You will take action, and it's as if I am taking action. Right? The image of God, when a ruler would lay his image upon any of his servants, that was a signifier that you are going to rule, that you are going to have authority in my place. And this is exactly what, the, what we see happening here in Genesis 1. We are image bearers who are called to take dominion, who are called to rule over the things that God has made in his place, in, in his stead, if you will, as he would do it. That's what we've been called to do, to live our lives and to image him as if he were living a life and as if he were imaging himself. You know, uh, when Jim Hamilton talks about this a lot in his book, when he was here, he talked about it, how God made the whole world to be his temple, right? What is a temple? A temple is the place where the glory of God is displayed and known. And what do you see in the middle of every temple? You ever go to an ancient temple? What was always in the middle of a temple? It was an idol. It was the image of whoever God whichever God the temple was being built to. So can't you see what, what God is doing here in his design? He has this whole world as his temple, as his holy and sacred place, and he puts his image right in the middle of it to display himself, to display his glory, to have dominion over everything that he had made. And then what does he say to the man and the woman? He says, go out, multiply yourselves, let my image, let my rule, let my reflection be known. Go fill the creation with people of your same kind. There's a lot into this. There's a lot into this blessedness that we carry. And because of this, we believe that human life is a sacred thing. Because of this, we believe that human life is blessed in a unique way, that it is given to us by God. There is a glory about human life. Now, obviously, this has been something that's been talked about over the past few weeks. Recently, it was the 40th or 50th, rather, I guess 40th anniversary of, of Roe v. Wade. Um, and on the anniversary, um, well, that wouldn't be right, but, you know, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And on the anniversary, um, this legislation was passed in New York, um, broadening the limits of abortion, the right to abort, all the way up into the delivery of the baby. There's other legislation that's being discussed in different uh, states right now. And so I want to comment on this. First on policy, Christians, because we believe this, because we have rightly understood, uh, we, have, we have Genesis. We have what I desired this man in, uh, uh, in China to, to have. We, these deep questions of our heart, God has given to us. And we know that there is a sacredness to who human beings are to be. We know that there is a blessedness in creation. You know, if you're coming at it from an atheistic or secular point of view, 
you, it, it, it makes sense that you wouldn't see the value of human life. You wouldn't see the divine sacredness of human life. But we know God has told this to us. And so therefore, Christians should be the most pro-life people of all. And we should desire to protect God's image in every life, particularly in those that are most vulnerable among us. And of course, an unborn baby, who is more vulnerable than that? The most vulnerable kind of human. And so of course we should be pro-life in every way. But I want to say this. This, this, doesn't just, this doesn't just apply to our abortion policy. To be pro-life, to be truly pro-life, it, it matters in, in every aspect of your life. It matters how you treat people. It matters how you engage with people. It matters that you, when somebody's serving you coffee in the morning, that you look them in the eye and smile. It matters that you're kind to the person that's doing the menial task. It matters that you notice the person. This is what it means. This is also what it means to be pro-life. It matters how you drive. And another thing I want to say too is, is when we talk about these things, Christians, again, should be pro-life. For someone to be made in the image of God, people that don't share our worldview are still made in the image of God. Right? So when you come across someone that doesn't share your worldview, that doesn't view the world through a biblical lens, that doesn't mean that they're somehow less than human. And so I think we should, I think we should take a page out of the Bible here and live by it. And realize that everybody, even if they vehemently disagree with us, are still image bearers. Still people made in the image of God. You know, when a, one, when a young woman, and I've sat in this chair, sits across from you in your office, who didn't grow up in a Christian home, who didn't grow up in a home where she was loved, and when that young woman is pregnant with a man that does not love her, in that situation, it's not a political situation. It's a human situation. And so, yes, of course, I want to respond to her with conviction and with truth. I want to help her to see what humanity is and what that life in her womb truly is. But I want to do that with a bit of understanding and love. And, and I think that, w- that we as Christians should, should understand that, that because we have such a high view of image of God, because we have such a high view of sanctity of human life, really every situation is a human situation where we're facing the world where we're where we're representing Christ before a watching world but we believe that every life the most vulnerable lives and even the lives that vehemently disagree with us have been blessed by God and bear his image and that God desires them to fill the earth with his glory So the final lesson here is the lesson of completion. The lesson of completion. This is the part of the passage that's often forgotten. We kind of get to the end of chapter 1 and stop. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but the the guy that kind of chopped the Bible up into chapter and verse, you know, he messed up here. Chapter 1 should really end at the end of verse 3. And so I apologize on his behalf. But... The, the, the mo- one of the most palatable 
days of creation is the seventh day. It's one of the most important days. It's when God finishes his work. And so don't forget the seventh day. And again, there's a lot to be said even about this idea of rest, of completion. But let me just say two things. First of all, there's, there's a kind of a thought I have on science, and then secondly, on story. It's been interesting, as I've kind of read through this, chipped away at it, and again, I'm, not a, I'm a theologian, I'm not a scientist, but I, I've tried to chip away at just trying to understand uh, Darwinistic thought, evolutionary thought, and, and it's interesting. You know, Stephen Gould, famous kind of atheist, dealt with these things. He wrote this in The Panda's Thumb. It was one of his famous works. He says, this is fascinating. He says, Darwin's argument still persists as the favorite escape of most paleontologists from the embarrassment of a record that seems to show so little of evolution directly. In exposing its cultural and methodological roots, I wish in no way to impugn the potential validity of gradualism. So he's saying like the idea of gradualism, the idea of uh, one species kind of morphing into the next. He's saying that's potentially a good idea. For all general views have similar roots. But then he says, this is cool. This is, this is a, a defender of atheistic kind of worldview. He says, I only wish to point out that it was never seen in the rocks. Paleontologists have paid an exorbitant price for Darwin's argument. We fancy ourselves as the only true students of life's history, yet to preserve our favored account of evolution by natural selection, we view our data as so bad that we almost never see the very process we profess to study. The history of most fossil species includes two features, particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Number one is stasis, that most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on earth. They appear in the fossil record looking much the same as when they disappear. Morphological change is usually limited and directionless. And then secondly, sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually from the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. Now, <coughs> I'm not trying to open up a scientific discussion here. I know it's the, it's the end of the sermon. You're like, oh no, I thought we were almost done. <laughs> but it is interesting and I'm not saying that God has not set his creation in motion. Creation is moving. It's alive. But there's a certain notion in this account and, as Gould says, in the rocks that there is a completion about what God has made. That God is resting from his creation. But secondly, I, I think there's a lesson about science, but there's also a lesson in the last three verses there about story. In most ancient understandings, most ancient accounts, there's a cyclical understanding of life. I think this was made famous by the Disney movie, The Lion King. The story goes round and round. It's told over and over. But Christians, biblical worldview folks, have a linear understanding of life, right? We believe there's a beginning of life, there's a middle of life, and there's an end of life. And God, to remind us of this, gives us a Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is something, again, there's a lot to, there's, I'm telling you, this, there's so much to be said just in this one account. But what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a day of rest. And the Sabbath for the Christian is a day to stop and remember completion. And to remember rest. Now why is this important? Well, first of all, it's really hard. 
you look through the Hebrew law, there's a lot of Sabbath laws. You know why there is? Have any of y'all ever tried to take a day off? (laughs) It's really hard to do. You've got to be really intentional to gun down and to stop working, to rest, and to enjoy completion. But it's so important. In fact, Hebrews 4, and I don't have a ton of time to get into the text, but I just want to make this one point. Hebrews 4 says, when it's talking about the Sabbath, it says, strive to enter the rest. Strive, it's an interesting passage, strive to enter into the rest. What does this mean? Here's what it means. When Adam was in the garden and God breathed on him, it was easy for him to see all of this, right? It was easy for him to see authority. It was easy for him to see order. It was easy for him to see beauty. It was easy for him to see blessedness. It was, it was easy for him to see the completion of God's work. It was easy. It was all right in front of him. There was no sin in the world. It was easy for him to see all of these things. And what did he do? He challenged authority. He challenged order. He went away from God's design. He stepped away from his role as the image bearer of God. He stepped away from God's blessedness. He challenged God's work of completion, saying, maybe it's not complete. Maybe I should be like God. He challenged all of this, and the world fell into chaos. As he was striving in his own strength, he ruined it all, just as we do all the time in our sin. But later, much later, there would would come another Adam, in another garden and when he was faced with these things when he was when he was faced with God's authority he said your will be done when he was faced with God's plan when he was faced with God's desired blessedness uh, upon us he actually became a curse so that we the image of heirs of God could be blessed and Jesus in his cross and resurrection has completed the work He's completed the work. And so when the author of Hebrews says, strive to enter the rest, here's what he's saying. In Christ and in Christ alone, there is completion. There is rest. There is blessedness. He realigns our hearts with God's authority. He realigns our hearts with God's beauty and God's order. There is rest in Jesus And he is preparing for us. He's preparing for those of us who are in him perfect and full rest. The Sabbath day is just a little reminder every week that one day all will be complete. And all will be well. And the work of God will be fully known and fully done. And he will be fully glorified. So strive to enter this rest. Strive to rest In Christ, strive to rest in the work that has been completed. Strive to enter into the completed work of our Lord. You know, I I know there's probably a lot of people here, and you come to, to this garden, the Garden of Eden, and it's a heavy garden. Because you see and I see how far our lives are from God's good design. And if this is a heavy place for you, that's good news. You're in good company. Because as Jesus took on this weight, it was a heavy place for him too. The garden was a heavy place for him too. But he gives rest. He has completed the work. In his cross, he has paid for all our sin, all our inefficiency, all our inadequacy. And in his resurrection, he he offers us life, complete life. Strive to enter his rest. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this, this, these ancient words um, that explain to us so much, that teach us so much, that give us so many lessons, that give us more than these five that we've considered today. But Father, I pray that uh, as we meditate on your word, as we meditate on your scripture, Father, I pray that you would just teach us and build us and move in our hearts, that we would uh, be a people who find your rest, that we would enter into your rest. And so Lord, I pray that um, you have been doing this work. I pray that you will continue to do this work. And I pray it for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.